This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January 8th, 2020. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up this week, freelance journalist Gabriel Popkin discusses the uncertain future of ash trees in the United States, as U.S. federal regulators announced dropping quarantine measures meant to control a voracious pest. I also talk with researcher Pavel Chivikov about uncovering the principles for organizing active matter. Active matter like ant bridges, bird flocks, or little swarms of robots. Now we have freelance journalist Gabriel Popkin. We're going to talk about the fate of the U.S.'s ash trees. Now that restrictions on the movement of ash trees, wood, and living trees, uh, basically what has been a tree quarantine, has been lifted by the federal government. Hi, Gabriel. Hi, Sarah. One thing I want to mention right away is these bumper stickers. Okay, bear with me here. They say, don't move firewood. And they mystified me for years when I would see them on pickup trucks or other places. But they're a sign of this quarantine. The Don't Move Firewood campaign began as a response to an insect called the emerald ash borer. Emerald ash borer is not the first insect or disease that's ever appeared in the U.S., that may attack a tree and then you may not want to move around. So I can't say for sure that there was never a don't move firewood campaign before. But <laughs> at any rate, the emerald ash borer appeared in 2002. It's proven to be very devastating. It kills almost every ash tree on the North American continent that it's ever encountered. And while it can fly from tree to tree, one of the main ways that it gets moved around is through firewood through, in other words, a tree that's already dead and has been cut up, but it still contains the insect. You can easily imagine someone putting a load of wood in their truck, moving it tens, hundreds of miles, and suddenly the emerald ash borer shows up, starts killing trees, starts reproducing and causing huge mayhem. So the emerald ash borer is an invasive pest. It was first noticed in 2002. What kind of damage has this bug done? Well, it's been called the most damaging forest insect to ever reach North America. And that's saying something because yeah. a lot of insects have showed up over the years, ever since people started crossing oceans. And a lot of damage has been done. So to be the most damaging is, is pretty huge. You know, I don't think anyone's like tallied up exactly how many trees the emerald ash borer has killed. But, you know, we're certainly, I think, well into the hundreds of millions at this point. 
I think the other thing that's important to note is that ash trees are really important trees in a lot of different ecosystems. They grow in wetlands, they grow along rivers and streams, they grow in savannas, they grow on mountains in forests. So it's not like you're just losing a tree in kind of one environment, but all the rest are okay. I think almost anywhere I go that has trees at all, I can see dead ash trees and evidence of this insect. So if you look at the map of where emerald ash borer is, it's pretty much a red blob that covers the eastern half of the U.S. into the Midwest. How does such a tiny bug, because they're really small, how does it take down such a big tree? Basically what happens is the adult beetle, the one that flies around and is green, and that's where you get the name emerald ash borer, it finds the ash tree, then it lays eggs on the bark, and those eggs hatch, and it's the larvae that burrow into the tree and sort of start eating the layer of the tree that's under the bark. You think of this big tree as being like all a living thing, but actually the interior of the tree, the wood is not living. The living stuff all happens sort of right below the bark in this layer called the cambium. And so once the, the larvae eat sort of a ring around that cambium layer, that pretty much cuts off everything above that layer from the roots. And the roots are where the tree gets water and nutrients. That's pretty much it for the tree. Now, you might say, well, does this tree below the ring survive? And the answer is yes. You know, you'll see the main trunk fall. And then a few years later, you'll see that it puts out new sprouts. So in a sense, the tree is still alive, but it's certainly not the big ecologically important tree that we think of. And I mentioned these bumper stickers, (laughs) don't move firewood. And that was part of a very large effort to basically quarantine areas of the country and keep the ash borer from moving around. But it looks like we won't be having that quarantine anymore. What's happening? So the quarantine was created by the U.S. Department of Agriculture and specifically an agency. We'll we'll just call it APHIS. It's an acronym for a, a long name. Part of its job is to protect plant health. And so when it became clear that the emerald ash borer was here and was killing trees, it got kicked to APHIS. And APHIS pretty quickly established this quarantine that was intended to stop the ash borer from moving from the infested zone to the uninfested zone. But the problem is the ash borer flies. It's very hard to detect. People do move it around through firewood and other also selling live trees. APHIS tried to stop this. I think they did you know a good job for the most part. The movement of live ash trees went to almost zero. But, you know, it didn't do the job. APHIS has said that. Other experts have said that. The ash borer continues spreading every year. You know, enforcing a quarantine costs money, and APHIS doesn't really have a whole lot of money to throw at this. So eventually they decided that it wasn't worth the money they were spending on the quarantine, and that money could be redirected towards other things that certainly aren't going to keep the emerald ash borer from spreading, but may enable the ash tree itself to have a viable future. This is like the biocontrol project that you talked about. These are wasps that infect the beetles that attack the trees. Exactly. You know, just to be clear, like APHIS has been doing this for a long time. It's not like they're just starting. And this is a strategy that's often used to try to control an invasive pest disease, an insect, what have you, is to basically find what are the species that control the original problem species in its home territory, which in this case is East Asia, and then bring some of those species over and sort of try to establish that same type of control in the new environment. And you might say, 
well, that doesn't sound like a good idea. We're introducing even more new things. But there is a pretty rigorous system where the new insects are quarantined. They're thoroughly studied to make sure that they won't have negative impacts on our environment. And only then are they released. And then after they're released, there's a lot of additional study that needs to be done. Like, are they able to establish independent populations? Do they actually attack emerald ash borers in the wild? And do they do enough damage to the emerald ash borer to knock it down to a level where trees can survive? And I would say the first two of those are definitely have been demonstrated. The third, you know, I'm hearing from scientists that they think they're seeing a lot of really promising signs, but I think it still remains to be seen whether biocontrol can actually ensure the future of ash trees in America. I saw you also wrote a story for science in 2020 about breeding ash trees to make them resistant to ash borers. Is that is that another weapon in the arsenal? You could put it that way, yeah. But it's it's, it's aiming at a different goal in a way. Biocontrol is intended to allow these resprouting trees that I mentioned earlier to survive, maybe not to survive to like 100 years, but to survive long enough that they can start making flowers and making seeds and reproducing. And that's kind of the key thing, right, in biology. If, if a yeah. population can reproduce itself, then it's, it's viable. Now, these resistant trees would go a step beyond that. They would be able to, you know, the ash borer might find them and try to eat them, but they would have an, enough ability to produce chemicals to defend themselves that they could continue to survive even in the presence of ash borer. And in fact, the resistant trees and the biocontrol wasps could actually work together to fight against the ash borer. Now, the one thing about the resistant trees is that, you know, biocontrol is out there right now. Resistant trees are still years, potentially decades away. It's just a very long process to breed these trees, to test them, and then to actually establish nurseries that would produce enough of these trees that they could actually be planted out in large enough numbers to make a difference. So we're looking at two different weapons, but one of them is sort of ready right now and the other is still a bit down the road. From your story, it sounds like this quarantine, at least directed from the federal level, is going away. Are all the states going to fall in line? I mean, when I look at this map, California doesn't seem to have any. The West Coast doesn't seem to have any. Are they worried about this? Are they going to keep quarantining? Yeah, that's an important point. So there's kind of two situations. There's a state like Minnesota that has the ash borer, but still has a lot of area that hasn't been infested. And what I've read is that Minnesota will maintain its own internal quarantine. And that's really important, among other things, for native tribes, because there are a lot of or several native tribes that have land in northern Minnesota. They haven't seen the ash borer yet, at least as of last time I talked to them. They expressed a lot of concern about the federal quarantine going away. And Mm -hmm. I think we're a little dubious that the state would be able to keep things going. But it sounds like the state is going to try And that's really important for these tribes and for other landowners that have ash on their property. There's actually these wetlands in parts of the northern U.S. and Canada that are really dominated by ash and would be totally devastated if the emerald ash borer got there. The western states is a different situation. They haven't seen the ash borer yet, and one could imagine it may not get there for years. So I think they are definitely looking into ways to slow that spread, to maybe even start breeding some of their trees now so that they'll Mm -hmm. have resistant trees when the ash borer gets there. To answer your question, yes, they're very concerned. (laughs) They have uh, unique ash species that don't live anywhere else, that for all anyone knows are completely vulnerable to the ash borer. They definitely are thinking about what they can do. 
this isn't purely, you know, a scientific decision to change over, you know, to get rid of a quarantine. There are financial considerations as well. One thing that I, I've heard from several people is that this question of resources, the USDA mounted a pretty vigorous ash borer program early on, and I got a figure from them that they spent about $350 million total. That includes the biocontrol, the breeding, as well as mm -hmm. the quarantine. After what became known as budget sequestration, which I think happened in 2013, the funding for the ash borer program went way down and it never recovered. And now USDA is saying we don't have the money to continue this quarantine. So I think it, it really like brings up a question of what's important and right. what, are, what are we willing to spend money on? The ash tree is one of the most important trees ecologically, maybe not commercially, but certainly ecologically in the eastern U.S., it seems that after 2013, we, we just weren't able to find the will to spend the money to try to save it. And I don't think it will be the last tree that sees a pest like this because global trade is continuing and we continue to see new insects and diseases mm -hmm. show up. Of course, most of them don't have as devastating an impact as the ash borer, but I think most experts feel like it's only a matter of time before another one does. And I think there are a lot of questions in my mind about whether we're really prepared and what we'll be able to do next time, if, we're, if we'll do any better than we did against the ash borer. Thank you so much, Gabriel. Thanks, Sarah. It was great to talk to you. Gabriel Popkin is a freelance journalist based in Maryland. You can find a link to his story at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with Pavel Chivakov about rattling little robots to get them organized. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there's no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, Upload your resume or CV to the searchable database or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. The study we're covering this week talks about rattling things around and getting organization out of it. And not just anything. We're not going to rattle around rocks or sand, you know, that might organize in response to vibration. We're talking about rattling around small robots, each kind of doing its own thing. This is basically a stand-in for active matter. Active matter like ants forming a bridge or birds forming a flock. Pavel Chivakov, an author on the paper, is here to talk about the principles of organizing swarms of things. Hi, Pavel. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Sure. I mentioned active matter in my intro. How should we think differently about active matter compared to, you know, things pinging around randomly, like molecules in a solution? So active matter, unlike molecules, is uh, things that are driven by forces at the level of particles. So the prototypical example is usually flocking birds because they follow simpler rules, do what your neighbors do, and overall together forming a big single organism in a sense. 
from flocking birds, we can then generalize to either ants building bridges or bees hiving. And actually, if you're going to call ants active matter, then you might as well actually call social dynamics or opinions also active matter. Because if you think of the space of possible opinions and how people behave, they tend to you know, align with the people they hear. So there is a kind of flocking and opinion space that you could also view as active matter. We're also going to introduce this idea of rattling. But of course, we're not talking about just like shaking a jar. What's the technical way you're going to describe rattling for this paper? Shaking a jar is one external force that is applied to the entire ensemble of whatever rocks you have in a jar. But here we were more focusing on active matter systems, which would then be propelled on the level of particles. So active matter has self-powered particles, like if a rock could move under its own volition or single cells that can propel themselves. So now we have active matter and we have rattling. And you wanted to do experiments to see what kinds of principles you could find about how rattling active matter can get organized. So you experimented with robots. You worked with roboticists to make little groups of active matter. How did that work out? The way it actually worked out is I was kind of sent to this lab to play with these robots, having already some early versions of this theory. And my advisor suggested that I try to do something cool with them and find how how this theory could be tested on them. So it was really a very ambitious, in a sense, venture. I thought that it would kind of never work on just a random system that was not designed to work for this theory. The fact that it worked out was very exciting. In retrospect, it was actually a great platform for testing this. But yeah, these uh, robots, they basically individually, each one can change shape. They can't translate on their own. They're completely helpless individually. And it's only together that they can achieve any sort of motion or any pattern. Whatever motion or whatever ensemble behaviors we observe are inherently arising from collective non-equilibrium phenomena. Mm -hmm. So it's a great platform to study this. And you stuck them all in a ring together. Our main test case was three robots in a ring, but we also played around with five and 10 ensembles in experiment and 15 Mm -hmm. and 100 in simulation. Yeah, so they were all in a ring so that they wouldn't just push away from each other so they could still stay together. And what we found is that they spontaneously organized as a group into these like very synchronous, globally choreographed dances. So it really looked like a it looked like a choreographed dance where they pass through these different these different shapes, right? They make a shape, then they make a different shape, then they go back to the first shape. The way that they were driven on the individual level and the way that the forces were implemented were mostly periodic, which then made them go through a certain cyclic behavior many times that basically was very stable, as you described. But we also tried some patterns that when the individual kind of propulsion or the forces weren't cyclical, but they were predictable. So whether the group can really find a way to move with those predictable patterns and somehow recognize this predictable nature of them, even if it wasn't just periodicity. So we talked about the robots having their own simple movements that they were doing, and they're grouped inside this ring, and they have to push off each other in order to move. Is there external rattling, or is the only you know motion generated from the robots themselves? The only motion is generated from the robots changing shape in this very simple way. And in this case, what rattling is how they push off of each other. What they were working with when I first came into the lab is they basically keep moving around kind of in a random chaotic sort of fashion. They don't do anything regular and it really kind of looks like rattling rocks in a jar more or less. But if the way that they're changing shape and the way that they're essentially being driven on an individual level 
is more orderly and more predictable, then they find a way to reduce this rattling by moving in a more orderly fashion. So it's no longer rattling. It's now like predictably doing these periodic choreographed things. The robots themselves, they don't have a, a plan. They don't have a command that says organize yourselves. And they don't have any programming that says make sure you form a pattern and, and do things repetitively. Yeah. So that's the key thing that the behavior of each robot was pre-programmed to do something that is completely independent of any other robots. They don't even have mm. sensors to detect each other or the presence. So each one is doing some very simple thing. So it's not on a software level that they learn to work together. It's really on just a physical hardware level that they self-organize their proximity to each other and their shape in the ensemble to form these kind of choreographies. You describe the stable state that these swarms reach as low rattling. They get organized, rattling is low. And I think a lot of us will kind of get this conceptually because we're used to thinking about, you know, systems reaching a low energy state. I'm thinking Boltzmann's Law. In the 19th century, Boltzmann basically discovered this Boltzmann's Law, which governs the behavior of equilibrium statistical mechanics and has now become a centerpiece of pretty much all of modern physics from cosmology to superconductors. But it doesn't apply to systems that are, let's say, active matter or more generally out of equilibrium systems. In our everyday world that we live in, a lot of things are out of equilibrium. Here, we were trying to come up with a similarly general and fundamental theory as Boltzmann distribution, but for out of equilibrium systems. And so that's where rattling comes in. So in Boltzmann distribution, we have energy as the key quantity. And we have the intuition that systems try to lower their energy, like balls try to roll downhill. An equilibrium position of a ball in a landscape is going to be at the bottom of some hill. And so that's energy being minimized. Here, rattling plays the same role as energy does in equilibrium with a system spontaneously looking for configurations that are somehow matched to the external driving forces such that they respond not as just rocks rattling inside a jar, but in a way that is somehow predictable, orderly, and stable. Boltzmann distribution works pretty much exactly, whereas this principle for non-equilibrium is more approximate because systems are so complex and so different. So here it's not as precise. But you are looking for general rules that can help people design things that use active matter or that predict the behavior of active matter in certain situations. Yeah, precisely. So a general principle by which we can predict what active matter will do, what active matter systems will spontaneously self-organize into some collective group behavior, and then how can we control the spontaneous self-organization? For example, can we grow cars instead of building them so that these cars spontaneously come together as an organism rather than being carefully built a bit by bit? And this is kind of the dream of uh, swarm robotics. I was going to say, how can this be applied in the future? Growing cars. Great. Okay. Could we talk about something a little bit more near term about how you see this growing and developing as a field, as a way of uh, looking at active matter? This theory could be a new way to think of swarm robotic systems. So as it is, swarm robotics are usually designed either by being kind of centrally controlled by a single unit that talks to all the robots and choreographs their dynamics, or they're carefully planned out to give each one individual rules that you then mathematically calculate will generate the collective behavior that you want. 
This theory gives a radically different approach where you just get each little robot to do its own fairly simple thing without really a priori understanding what the collective behavior will be. And then you set their environment such that the only stable collective behavior will have the properties that you want. That gives a new approach to designing and building swarm robotic systems. One really cool thing about that approach is that your resulting swarm is possibly going to be a lot more stable and have some of those biological-like properties, for example, ability to self-heal if one or several of the robots break down. It'll go back to another stable state that is close to the one that it was in. So it's not going to break the entire choreography of the swarm. It'll simply find a new choreography with the fewer robots that are still alive. And so that ability to kind of self-heal as a collective is a hallmark property that makes biological systems really cool and something that we haven't quite been able to achieve with technology yet. So this could be a way to to go in that direction. Sounds like there's a lot of places it can go. Yeah, I, I have a personal tendency of trying to solve everything in one go because I'm kind of lazy and I don't want to do them separately. Uh, but <laughs> I, I don't know. I guess it also just motivates me to uh, to do science. It's something that like makes me passionate about it. I don't know. It doesn't have to be so realistic. It's just kind of fun to think about. Thank you so much, Pavel. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great. Pavel Chivakov is a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Physics at MIT. You can find a link to his paper at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S.org join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.